0: That's right, get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker.
0: You'll find what you came for here,
1: and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
2: The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by
0: smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be
2: honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it.
0: Welcome to to smartpeoplepodcast.com.
2: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast. Conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Wherever you are out there, there's a 99% chance that it is the new decade. And I want to be one of the first to say to you, Happy New Year happy new decade, happy new podcast episode. I got to say, I'm, I'm feeling nostalgic. I mean, this really, this turn of the decade here represents 10 years of doing this podcast. And going back 10 years, listening to those first few episodes, by the way, don't, but it's like a time warp. I was 26 years old. I was clueless about what I wanted to do. I had just gotten finished with a career in finance and was trying to find myself and my passions and life was complicated or confusing. And that's pertinent because it's so fitting that today's episode really is about how many of us do kind of stumble around and try different things and eventually find our way. And the best part is that's okay. In fact, it's helpful. And for those that do like to try out a number of things and sometimes feel like they don't know where they're going, I think this interview will really help you understand that, look, good things come to those who try, learn, fail, and grow. Oh, and it doesn't hurt that our guest this week is a two-time number one New York Times bestselling author. It is almost guaranteed that you have heard of him. If you haven't, I'm so happy to be the one to introduce you to him. And that is David Epstein. So you may know of David from his previous number one New York Times bestseller, The Sports Gene, which was an incredible book. It was actually mentioned as one of President Barack Obama's favorite reads. And then in May of 2019, David wrote another number one New York Times bestselling book, and that is Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Range, the book we spend pretty much all of this interview talking about, and I have an admission, I can't say that I felt this was one of my best efforts, my best interviews. David was incredible, but it was tough because everything he says hits so close to home. I mean, you'll notice me kind of just map my journey of the past 10 years directly onto the research he uncovered in Range. So when I'm so close to a topic, it's hard to be objective and step outside of it. However, I know many of you like that personal touch. So you'll hear a little bit more about my life, my stories, and my struggles and successes as well. So we're going to turn it over to David here in a minute as he talks about range. But before we do, as we begin this new decade and we keep trying to grow this thing, we're turning it into the media company that we really want it to be to share these conversations with the world, to do even more to help people learn, to really create multiple avenues to help satisfy your curious mind. If you want to support that effort, we'd really appreciate you taking the time. Head to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. Even if you support us at $1 an episode, that's a big help. And for a small sum of money, you'll get some cool perks like ad-free episodes and more to come. And make sure you subscribe because John and I are going to be releasing a non-regular episode here soon, which is our annual Let's Drink Bourbon and Talk About the Year. But I think this one's going to be different as we talk about the upcoming decade and the one that we just closed off. So thanks for joining us on this Ride of Smart People podcast. Let's close it out with one of my all-time favorite interviews with David Epstein as we talk about why it's okay to have multiple interests, try multiple paths, and take the road less traveled. Enjoy. You just came out with a book called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And just like your previous book, it is jumping to the top of every chart, it's on everyone's mind. And first, I just want to say congratulations. Oh, I really appreciate that.
1: Um, and th- this one seems to have, uh, compared to the first one, was sort of blew up in a niche. This this one has been a little more unexpected uh, for me, a li- little wider audience, I
2: guess. Yeah, well, I think you hit on a subject that everyone needs to hear. And here's why I say that. You have single-handedly validated my reason uh, for creating this podcast. And I I created it, and all our (laughs) listeners know this, with my best friend, John, who is still uh, half of this production. And we were in our early 20s. We had both worked for these big Fortune 50 firms and very quickly realized it wasn't for us. We quit and we said, how do we get advice from as many smart people as possible so we can try to figure out what to do next? And what's funny, is I find we're one of the few podcasts we will talk to experts in any genre because I've always had this inclination Mm -hmm. that there are going to be themes that will help me in my life. And sure enough, they have, which is what you're basically arguing for, for generalists. Yeah. I mean, that's a really neat thing to hear. Right.
1: Um, and it it doesn't totally surprise me. Like I, I, I sort of love whether it's a podcast or a conference or whatever it is, um, venues that have that sort of wide reach, right? And uh, you're addressing whatever it is. Say you're interested in motivation, overcoming obstacles, how people think about their work, how they found what they do, right? Like whether you're talking to a ballet dancer or a pilot or a business person or a writer there, it becomes pretty clear. There are sort of a lot of lessons that transfer from one to the other. And I find for myself, it's often easier for me to assimilate lessons, even in my own work, if they're actually Mm -hmm. coming from outside of my daily Uh view, basically. Um, That's one of the reasons why I got so interested in that, that topic that I wrote about in range of analogical Mm -hmm. problem solving, like how sometimes, um, well, oftentimes when someone's facing a novel problem, it, it turns out that one of the best strategies for coming up with solutions is looking for structurally similar situations in totally different domains. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's sort of sort of analogous to that in some way, An- analogous to analogical mm-hmm. thinking. That's how, how's that for uh,
2: piling on? No, I, I like that because, so I just moved into a new house and why I'm mentioning this is because when you get into a new environment, you're so acutely aware of differences, of nuance, yeah. of how unfamiliar you are that I feel like you operate at a heightened level. And for me, and I'm curious if, if this is why you like to kind of step outside your comfort zone as well, it, it provides just a lot more opportunity to think and learn as opposed to being in a daily monotony, whether it be my job, my structure, or my physical environment. And that's why I'm thinking maybe when we when we step outside or we learn from experts in various fields and find those themes it can be more striking. It can be more novel, which triggers our brain. No, I, I, I completely agree with that. And it, it's sort of, stimulates
1: a couple thoughts for me. So, so, so let me di- be a little digressive if, uh, if you'll allow, which it sounds like, oh, yeah. it sounds like, Digress you like. um, so on, on one hand, I'm gonna make a weird analogy here. Uh, there was, I was reading for <laughs> my first book. This is going to sound funny. I got into the, the scientific literature on speed typing. Okay. Um, so like how people, you know, some people like compete in how fast you can, you can type. Um, <laughs> and, one of basically the way that I sum up what I learned in the research was everybody just by typing, like just by trying to send emails or do whatever it is you do on a daily basis will get pretty good, like between like 50 and 80 words a minute or something like that, or 50, and 90 words, a minute, just from, just from doing it without like specifically trying to get better. And then you plateau and people kind of assume that's, that's where they're stuck. But if you, you can actually, you can get way, way better. Like a lot of people can like almost double their typing speed. But what you have to do is like take a metronome, put it a little faster than you can type and, and try to type at that speed, no matter how many mistakes you make, just hit that speed. And then you tick it up a little bit every couple of days. And like a year or two later, you know, you're 70% faster or something like that. And I think it's an interesting analogy because it, it, I see something similar to this in a lot of skill building literature where just by doing something, you'll get kind of good enough but then it seems like we naturally settle into kind of an area of, of sort of comfort and convenience. And I think it looks really similar with a lot of our uh, cognition, where when you do something over and over and over, your your mind and your body sort of adapt to make it as convenient as possible. And convenience involves not noticing things except for sort of the things directly in front of you every day. And in some cases, that can be good. Like I talk about some of the the so-called kind learning environments in range, which are areas that are more amenable to being very, very specialized like chess. And one of the things that happens to a, a chess grandmaster as they develop their skill is they start to recognize certain patterns on the board and not pay attention to the stuff that they they don't need to look at essentially to, to do exactly what they need to do. But then when mm. you get into these sort of more open tasks, like most other areas of work, not to mention, you know, you're talking about like life, <laughs> like your, your view of the world, uh, then that can be a real drawback because then you're, you're, you're not just wanting, if you don't just want to do the same thing and think the same thoughts every day, then that sort of gravitation of your mind toward convenience actually like really narrows your horizons. And so you have to, you have to sort of forcibly change things up if you want to stay out of that, that I call these, uh, I call it a rut of competence where, um, I was talking to the economist Russ Roberts, you know, who does the podcast Econ Talk, and I was saying like people get very clear in a lot of this uh, literature and this research that people get stuck in these ruts of competence where they get sort of good enough at something, and then the problem is by doing the same thing over and over, they they won't get better anymore. He called it hammocks of confidence, competence, because he said it's so comfortable that that people don't kind of want to get out, which is why they end up kind of doing the same thing over and over and not getting better.
2: You know, that reminds me of literally as of this recording, the last interview we just aired was with this this guy, his name is Nir Ayal. Oh, yeah, and, I know Nir. Yeah, and it was, I mean, it was really fascinating. And one of the things he talks about is in, in his research and what he understands, most people's primary goal is to avoid discomfort. Yeah. And and it's that's what you're talking about. I mean, we're pre-programmed to avoid discomfort anywhere and everywhere, yet what we're talking about here in range is actually almost putting yourself in uncomfortable situations, and we'll get much further in that. So do you feel that what you're suggest- suggesting is abnormal, or is it just maybe the path less traveled? What do you think about that? I, I think some of each of
1: those, and I, I think it's abnormal in the sense of... Um... I think it sort of increasingly becomes abnormal for adults, right? When we're all pretty young and we're not sort of attached to our competence in any particular area and we don't like hinge our entire identity on any particular area. um, I think we're very willing to jump into new stuff. And then once you develop kind of an area of competence and identity, then I think it starts to become more abnormal because then it's kind of like, well, why would I do something? Like, why would I go back to the earlier part of a learning curve uh, you know, when I can just stay doing something I'm already competent at. Mm. And and so I think it sort of becomes abnormal over time, but that also means that it's a huge competitive advantage to not <laughs> get stuck in that, right? Let me, let me give you an example just from uh, like something that happened to me while I was writing range, which is I had in, in, in between my books, I went and worked for a place called ProPublica that does investigative journalism. And um, I was doing like bread and butter investigative stuff, like drug cartels and, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing that work, you really want to lean really heavily on quoting people for a lot of reasons. Like you want things in sources, voices, your lawyers want things in sources, voices, you know, it, it makes sense for a lot of reasons. And so when I started writing range, I was being like very quote heavy. And Sometimes that was kind of because maybe I didn't totally understand something. And so I put in someone else's words. And and I, I got stuck while I was writing it in an area. like I wasn't sure how to structure it. And I decided to take a beginner's online fiction writing class, thinking like maybe this will help me with my structural issues. And, and it didn't so much do that. But at one point, we had to um, do an exercise where you had to write a story using no dialogue whatsoever. And something about doing that exercise like cue this in my head that I was like, I'm leaning on quotes in a lazy way to explain things that I don't understand enough and and to glue together parts of my narrative. And that is not, is too confusing. If I don't understand it well, I need to go back and understand that stuff. Because if I don't understand it well enough that I can write it sort of in my own narration, the reader's certainly not going to. And it gets exhausting to read stuff that's that quote heavy at the length of a book. Uh-huh. And so it was interesting that this exercise kind of you know, going from still writing, but going from a kind of writing I'm competent in to total beginner in another kind of writing, just like flipped a switch in my head where I was like, oh, I'm stuck in this sort of form of writing that I've been doing for the last couple of years. And now I'm applying it in a medium where it doesn't work as well. I went back through the entire manuscript I had at that point, realized what I had to understand better, uh, stripped out lots of quotes so the, the writing wouldn't be as exhausting to read. You know, but, but normally, like, would someone give me the advice to go take an online beginner's fiction writing class for what I do on a daily basis? Probably not, but, but that turned out to be
2: like a huge help for me. I'm curious, in all of your research, which you have done an immense amount, you can tell in the book, have you found that there are people who are naturally inclined to keep things new and fresh, to constantly quit, change, move, and then there are others who would prefer not to, and that's just a character trait, or is it learned or environmental That, that, that's interesting. And whether or not,
1: you know, having read a previous book on genetics, I'll say whether or not it's, um, encoded genetically in people, I, I don't know. I I think, well, there's something called the first law of behavioral genetics, which is that all behaviors have at least some genetic component. Sometimes it's very small. Sometimes it's not so small, but, but it's always there. That said, I think it's pretty clear from psychological research that people do, um, Vary in that sort of attraction to newness and novelty, no question about it. In fact, it's one of the so-called Big Five personality traits is related to that. So, the Big Five personality traits that psychologists study are openness to experience, conscientiousness, uh, which is kind of like grit that some people know, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And mm-hmm. openness to experience is not only really associated with how creative people are, but how willing they are to seek out. New experiences, essentially, as opposed to um, sticking with that more comfortable rut, and this relates to what we were talking about before, where you asked me, you know, is it outlier to do that kind of stuff? And I said, I think it is more so as we become adults because we know that openness to experience, a person, we change on those personality, like people. So it, it's called the end of history illusion. The, the The fact that people their their personality traits change more than they think over time, but all through life, we say like. Oh, I changed a lot in the past, but I'm not going to change much in the future. And we're continually wrong about that. Um, and one of the traits that changes a lot is openness to experience, um, and it goes down pretty reliably as you get older. Uh, you know, it goes goes up at a certain point early in life, and then goes down, and really goes down kind of in middle age. But but one of the things I think is really interesting is that there's some neat research showing that you can really stem that decline actually by trying new stuff. And in some of this research older people were made to learn new things. And it actually didn't even matter if they got much better at those things. It was just the fact that they were made to, to try to learn these new things that that bucked the normal decline of openness to experience. So I think that's a whole other reason uh, to try to like continually be trying new things because it seems to it, it seems to sort of be an anti-aging medicine in terms of your openness to experience.
2: Yeah. And I'm sure as well as your cognitive abilities, keeping them going by mixing things up. And I have to admit, this conversation, this interview is is pretty self-serving because I would say that there is a societal stigma, you know, that, hey, you need to stay in a job longer or don't give up so easily. Of course, it's hard at first type mentality. I, I think still to this day is looked down upon, and it's something that for me is the only way to go. I mean, the biggest quote I have in my office is something I came up with, which is my comfort zone is not that comfortable, Mm -hmm. meaning I'm most comfortable when things are new. And and I don't know if I fully bought in yet. That's why I really had to have you on, because I've faced so much anxiety and stress over not being the way society wants you to be in this specialized world. Is that at all why you wrote it or in, in all of the research and writing it, did you find, you know, I need to, to put a word out there for those generalists who are trying to pigeonhole themselves. That, that's right. Really, you, okay.
1: You, you touched on a, I, I was taking some notes there because you, you brought up, I'm going to ramble again. I have a digressive brain that I,
2: well, I ramble too. So this will <laughs> just be a rambling <laughs> Right, I, I have
1: to, I have to, uh, fake like I have an organized brain in my books with lots of hard editing. Um, <laughs> So to to start, you asked, did did I sort of write this book for those people? I think I think in part I did because, and I mentioned this in the introduction. One of the um, sort of. Part of the impetus for taking on this project, because this is obviously like a very amorphous topic, right? I, I don't think I wouldn't have sure. just like out of nowhere said like, "All right, I, I want to write a book about how broad or specialized to be," you know, because it's it's kind of ill defined. But I, I had already been thinking about it and writing about it in the sports context, and then I ended up getting involved with the Pat Tillman Foundation, as uh, foundation, uh, you know, in the name of the former NFL player who uh, left in the middle of his NFL career uh, to to join the army and was killed in Afghanistan and it gives scholarships mm. to military veterans and spouses basically for career changes. Um, and I ended up on the selection committee, which is like, I'm definitely the clown of the selection committee. You know, it's like some generals and like, and me, <laughs> um, and no, there's a couple other, and like John Krakow there's a couple other civilians, but um, and one of the things I would notice is okay, let's say when I get, even if I get someone's resume in this process, I look at the resume and and the first instinct, even for me, is, gosh, this person looks kind of scattered, you know? Like, let's say they went to high school or college, they started some job, they didn't really feel fulfilled in it, so they joined the military and then they end up doing something totally different than what they expected or wanted. They end up, say, you know, administering Medicare medicine to like people in a remote village in some foreign country. And by doing that, they realize like international relations are totally different than they thought. Administration of public health initiatives is totally different. Bureaucracies are dysfunctional in ways they didn't know about, et cetera, et cetera. And they come back with some totally new idea of things they want to learn or business they want to start or grad school they want to go to. And so when you look at the resume, because they've been doing all this zigzagging, you're like, whoo, you know, this is the first impression is this is someone who doesn't know what they want to do. Then, you learn from them and from people they've worked with, and you know you get a much more holistic at view of who they are. And it becomes, the people who tend to get awarded the scholarships, it, it becomes a, a picture of a journey where someone was responding to their lived experience by changing direction. They were learning about their own interests, their own abilities, opportunities they didn't know about in the world. And from that learning, they would use it and pivot. And to me, That's exactly what you want rather than someone who just puts their head down and forges in the straight direction, despite all the things they should be learning as they go through the journey. The problem is our instinct, I think, is exactly what I said to say like, gosh, that person looks kind of scattered. And so, so I think it's really important, you know, and I contacted someone at LinkedIn to suggest they make this easier um, to, to like build a narrative out of your resume that isn't, and, and I was you know, I was guilty of this too. Like I was training to I was living in a tent in the Arctic studying geology in grad school when I decided for sure to become a writer. And yeah, wh- wh- long story short, I end up as a temp fact checker at Sports Illustrated and I'm kind of like, ah oh, that that science track, I guess I learned that I didn't want to be a scientist, but that was wasted time. And then pretty soon I realized that the skills I had learned studying science were totally ordinary when I was around other scientists, but completely extraordinary when I was at a sports magazine. So that if I could leverage those, mm. that would be my differentiator. And that like very quickly uh, worked out really, really well. And and from that, I kind of learned like, oh, experiences are never wasted. <laughs> you you need to view them for what you learned and then pivot accordingly. And And I think that's actually already showing up a lot more than people think. So LinkedIn did research recently on a half million members and found that one of the strongest predictors of who would go on to become an executive was the number of different job functions that someone had worked in. So LinkedIn's principal economist, his main recommendation from this research was, if you want to be an executive, you should work in a lot of different job functions, especially early on in your career. And yet, we still would probably almost never give that advice to someone, even though it's the advice from you know, the chief economist of, of LinkedIn after studying a half million members, because we still have this stigma that that's like indicates that someone just doesn't know what they want to do. And, and I get it because when we were an industrial economy where work next year would look like work last year, it made a ton of sense to specialize. And there were huge barriers to lateral mobility, but that isn't the case anymore. And so we're actually seeing benefits accrue to people who take advantage of lateral mobility, I think our sort of cultural cues just haven't caught up yet.
2: I find that organizations worry if they see you look quote unquote scattered, they think they're just another stop on your journey. And that stop might be one year and we're investing all this money. But when you're talking about generalists, you're not always saying you're going to have to quit a job. It just means take on new functions, new projects, be nimble, even within the same organization, right? Absolutely. And I think some organizations, like one of the organizations I write about is
1: 3M. And I think they have about 7,000 inventors who are tasked with like, come up with something new, right? 3M, they have this this decree where they try to make a quarter of their uh, profits every year from, uh, or a quarter of revenue every year from products that didn't exist five years ago. So they, they have a large number of people who are <laughs> tasked with coming up with new stuff. And they realize, you know, they've learned from their, and they've seen in their own internal research that it's it's these inventors who have worked across a large number of different technological classes as, as defined by the patent office who end up making the largest contribution. So they actually sacrifice more depth for breadth as they go through their careers and they work on lots of different teams and lots of different areas. And so they do things like they set up something they call the periodic table of technologies. That's basically a periodic table that organizes all the different uh capacities of the company so that people can see that and see what else is available so they can go try other things or or coordinate with other people and so i think there are places that recognize that that say like well we would like to develop people without them having to leave and then and then have to hire them back if we can so they kind of set up this more internal mobility and, and even um I ju- i'm just writing an afterword for the paperback edition now oh like, wow. literally now I have to turn it in on Friday. And um, <laughs>
2: Thanks for taking and, the time to do this, you know. <laughs> hey,
1: my, my pleasure. And and just because the listeners don't know, thanks for being gracious that, that I got the scheduling a little bit messed up. Oh, no very, worries. You handled that very kindly. Um and uh so the there's something I put in a footnote on page one forty, just a footnote called talent based branching, which is this army program that was started when the army realized that it was basically hemorrhaging its its best talent, like people that were going to West Point and stuff like that and, and getting full ROTC scholarships because they had stuck with this very traditional model um, of development that worked when we were in an industrial economy where they would basically assign someone to a job and that person would go up or out on that career path like forever. But then starting in the early 90s, they started having this incredible retention problem where they would lose like almost half of West Point graduates almost on the day that their service commitment was up. And at first they thought it was like this millennial grit problem and all this that they had developed overnight and, and they s- decided to study it. And it turned out it was actually the fact that given that a, a knowledge economy had exploded, now there are many fewer barriers to lateral mobility. If you can engage in knowledge creation, and creative problem solving, uh, then you have a ton of lateral mobility. And so these young people who were learning things about themselves in their late teens and early twenties and were very high potential would be stuck in a career track in the army that they didn't even, you know, didn't even know about much before they got in it. And so they would leave the Army to to try other things outside. And so in response, the Army has started programs like this one called Talent-Based Branching, where they give people opportunities to dabble in a bunch of different areas. They they set them up with mentors who they can, as they go through those experiences, they can reflect on how each one fits or doesn't with their own interests and abilities, some of the interesting in, in the research, it, it keeps saying like, sometimes the cadets, it comes as not a, you know, an unpleasant surprise to to learn about like their interest and ability in something they thought would be a perfect fit for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've found that through this process of sort of uh, like coached dabbling, essentially, 90% of the cadets who went through it changed one of their top three career preferences, 90%, which suggests how little they really know about what they're good at and interested in, what their options are before they get a chance to dabble. And so this program is really young, but so far the indications are that it's improving retention um, be- and satisfaction because people are having a chance to do something akin to lateral mobility within there you know, without, without leaving the
0: organization as a whole. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the world's largest selection of audiobooks and audio entertainment, including Audible Originals. Audible keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. You'll finish more stories when you listen with Audible and always be part of the conversation. With the convenient Audible app, you can listen anytime, anywhere, and on any device mobile, Alexa enabled, Bluetooth, and more. Listen at the gym, while shopping, walking your dog, in the car, while traveling. Anytime you can't read, you can listen with Audible. Audible members get more than ever before. Every month, you can choose one audiobook regardless of price, as well as two Audible originals from a fresh selection. Sign up for free updates from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post delivered daily to the app. Audible members can easily exchange any title they don't love at any time. And members keep their library of listens forever, even if they cancel. Start listening today with a 30-day Audible trial. Choose one audiobook and two Audible originals absolutely free. Visit audible.com smart or text SMART to 500-500. Again, that's audible.com SMART or text SMART to 500-500. You've been listening to an interview with David Epstein, so why not check out his audiobook over on Audible it's called Range, While Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. You can start listening free today by heading over to audible.com slash smart or text SMART to 500-500. And now back to the episode. Something I found, and
2: I've listened to a lot of your interviews and things like that, you talk a lot about how much we change as we grow. And- Again, this top, it's really hard for me to just make this a monologue because this is the story of my life. And what I have found is that we undervalue how much we change as we grow. And we actually only know it after the growth has occurred. So when I was 20, I thought, you know what? I just want to make a lot of money. And so I built this career path off of that. And then on day one, in my finance job, day one, knew that I had made a grave mistake. Wow, and dude, day one. D- yeah, that was impressive. I mean, that was different. But but and and then it took four to six years to realize, okay, you know, I, I actually want to be more values oriented and and help people and things like that. My point to all of this is when we know that we're going to change, which I think if you ask anyone, they'll say, Yeah, I'll be different. We often don't care, and we don't even give it enough thought. Why does it matter to know how much we're going to change, and what can we do with that knowledge that we're not currently doing?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and and I'd also be interested to hear what it was on day one. That that's yeah. very unusual to to, oh, <laughs> to realize that. But, oh, okay, do you want to Can can you tell me, and then I'll then I I'll can get back to the question. Okay.
2: Yeah. So for me, it's funny in arrears. I I kind of know why, but. I didn't realize how much of your life you dedicate to work. So uh, I played sports my whole life um, through college. And so my parents always said, if you dedicate yourself to sports, we'll kind of support you financially to some degree. I didn't have nice things, but I had things. So I, for better or worse, didn't learn like if you have a full time job, <laughs> it's full time. So on day one, when you wake up at six driving, because I live in D.C., drive an hour to work, Right Work for nine, ten hours because it's finance, drive an hour home and now it's dark again. I instantly realized I can't do this for forty mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. and that was it. that's really interesting thanks yeah. for sharing that um,
1: so now and now i will I'll, I'll go back to your question and and you know you were summarizing something that that I mentioned only in passing a little earlier, but that is is literally like a a finding in psychological research that end of history illusion that That every time point in life, people recognize that they have changed a lot based on their experiences and growth in the past and then say, but I won't change that much in the future. And at every time point in life, we're wrong. Now, the fastest period of personality change is about, you know, and then we're talking about everything, the way you like to spend your time, your views of your strengths and weaknesses, all these sorts of things. Um, you know, people already know this for like their preference for like hairstyles and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but the fastest time of change is from your late teens to your late 20s. So that's like usually when we're exactly telling people they better settle down. Yeah. Um, and but the change never stops. It never stops. And I think that's really important to recognize because I think we're used to thinking of, again, in this sort of industrial mindset where like our whole education system, by the way, came out of Taylorism, which is like the science of management efficiency that worked really, really well. For industrial economy where work next year would look like work last year for most people. And so we set up an education system that where we taught people, we, we understood what basic skills people needed. And so we set up a discrete period of training that you would then give them and then they could work, you know, using those skills for the rest of their life. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone to hear now that you can't really have uh, a lifelong career in most cases by having like an early discrete period of training in your late teens and early twenties, and then expecting not to have to learn new skills over the rest of your career. right? Yeah. Um, and so I think what we need to recognize is that's not necessarily a bad thing because our preferences and our strengths and weaknesses change to some degree over our lifetime. And so we shouldn't be afraid of learning new things because we should actually want to, it, sh- it should make sense that we shouldn't want to do the exact same thing. Um, over over the course of our life. And so I think this sort of hunt for match quality, like a lot of the people in the book didn't that I wrote about didn't set out and say, I want to be a generalist, right? They set out in search of match quality, which is the term economists use to describe the degree of fit between someone's interests and abilities and the work that they do, which turns out to be really important for, you know, fulfillment and performance. And they set out looking for that. And because you don't always find it right away, they ended up you know, zigzagging a lot in search of that and ending up with this broad toolbox and and a lot of insight into themselves and their opportunities when they got there. And so I think a a way to go about this is to continue looking for that match quality throughout your life, understanding it's going to change from time to time, but but never sort of settling and and making that a lifelong process. I know that is for me. Um, And so I, I, I plan to never have like a period
2: where that stops basically. Well, and this is, in my opinion, this is the core of it all. The On my notes in front of me, the biggest thing I have, phrase with, um, with exclamation marks and everything, is match quality. Because mm-hmm. what I really wanted to dedicate our conversation to is what this podcast has been dedicated to, is what a lot of my life has been dedicated to, which is, including myself, helping people find work that they enjoy. And it was born from pain, right? Knowing what it's like to to dedicate so much of your life to something that you don't necessarily enjoy. And it's this idea of match quality. However, when you're young, you, you can't, it's really hard, if not impossible to know what that match is going to be, but people around you and everyone else are trying to get you to make that match. I mean, really, in my opinion, it's the hardest question to answer. How do you solve that for somebody who's 20 or even 30 but still hasn't found it and it's just feeling the mounting anxiety of thinking i'm never going to find something i enjoy
1: yeah that's a great question and 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 let me let me preface that by saying um i have no idea what i'm doing next none Mm. so uh you know for me to act like i've got that totally figured out like i have i have processes that i think sort of work for me and approaches um but you know, after, I guess after my first book, like I was getting um, pushed to write the sequel. I don't even know what that would mean, but that's kind of not, <laughs> but, but instead, like as soon as that book came out, I actually left, it was, a, you know, about sports and sports science and I, I left sports. I left Sports Illustrated right away and went to do totally different stuff. Like I said, like drug cartel reporting and things like that, which seemed crazy from the outside, but totally improved my skills to a point where I could not have written range had I not taken that swerve. Because I needed some skills different than those ones I had, Um, but but getting back to your point, this uh, you're right. Not only are we telling people to you know pressuring them, and I and I think it's well-meaning. A lot of the pressure is well-meaning to to figure out what they want to be, you know, when they're in their their late teens um, or early twenties. A a lot of the jobs that they're probably going to end up doing don't even exist. Uh, when we're telling them to do that increasingly, right? Cause jobs are changing pretty quickly. And, and I think it, it reminds me what you said and, and your description of your first day, um, at, at work that, that made you realize you didn't want to do it of one of my favorite quotes in the book that came from Herminia Ibarra, who, uh, studies basically both how people find good match quality and how they transition, um, in order to, to, to like, uh, how they sort of change their, their work identity. She says, we can't, we don't just, you mentioned it took you four to six years, right? To make a change. I think that's. that's yeah,
2: point. it did actually, which is funny. That's why I'm saying like, I, I don't want people to misconstrue it. I, I, I realized it on day one, but yet it took uh, about four and a half years to actually leave. That, that's totally normal.
1: <laughs> I mean, when Herminia studied people making transitions, she, she wrote a book called Working Identity. And the reason she called it hmm. Working Identity was because she realized that even once people realized that, They really wanted to make a change. They didn't, that doesn't happen overnight because work is part of your identity. Like you, you were saying you had those goals for a long time right? And you had yeah. expectations for a long time. And identity doesn't just change overnight, even if you start getting contrary signals. And you know the sunk cost fallacy is a real thing. You've invested energy and time in reaching that goal. You're not going to snap your fingers and all of a sudden that stuff goes away because it's, it's part of your identity. And so, so what she saw was that people who make these successful transitions, it often starts by sort of getting these cues that something isn't quite right. And then they get like a keyhole view into something else they could be doing or something they're good at that they didn't really know about. And so they sort of engage in it a little bit, but not a lot. And they escalate and escalate until the point where they're like, um, you know what, this is a change I really need to make. But that, that takes, that takes a lot because they have, it's a slow identity change over time. And a lot of people are telling them, you know, ah, just keep that as a hobby, right? Like you, you don't want to change directions you'll get behind. <laughs> and so it takes a lot of time. And my, the quote I love from her was and, and I think this in some ways summarizes an important part of our work is we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And, and what she means by that is there's all these like personality quizzes and, and just general advice and, and articles that either say explicitly or imply that we can like introspect and just know who we are just by thinking about ourselves. When in fact, all the research shows you actually have to do stuff and then reflect on it. To, to learn about yourself and the things you like to do and what your options are and your your strengths and your interests and that, that might not be a happy answer because it means you have to act and then think and you you know you can't just like by sitting around introspecting find the perfect match but that that turns out to be the way it is. Um, and so I think we need to keep that in mind that you have to do some acting and then thinking and and that's an important thing to do and that means you're going to have some zigzags and that the most important thing you can do from your early experiences, Like for you and like for me, when I was, I worked on a ship and in a tent in the Arctic and my goal was, I I was expecting to find out that I wanted to be a scientist for the rest of my life. And instead I found out that, you know, I started asking myself, am I the type of person who wants to spend my whole life learning one or two things new to the world or much shorter spans of time learning things new to me and translating them? And I I decided I was the latter. Uh, And that wasn't what I wanted to find out, but I think it was a really important thing to find out. And... I think it's really important to spend time in reflection, like like the army built in all this reflection into that talent-based branching pro- program. There's a, a ton of literature uh, looking at what's called self-regulatory learning, which are people who, when they're doing something, they're constantly reflecting on like what it taught them, and they end up learning their own interests and strengths and weaknesses better than people who just sort of go through the motions. So I think we need to, when we're doing things, we need to constantly be reflecting on what we're learning from it instead of sort of going on autopilot as we talked about before like once you become competent and it sounds like you know maybe it was a little lucky that you got that signal on day one or maybe you're just a reflective person that you got that signal you know early on
2: well and I I you know listeners know this so if, if you guys are listening and want to fast forward two minutes I just have to let David in on this because look you wrote this book and and it is so incredible and you talk about all of these these world-class people. And I know sometimes, especially doing interviews with world-class people, there's hard to make the connection. So say you're reading range and it's tough to make to make the connection because you're talking about becoming, you know, a C-suite executive or, um, you know, a Nobel Prize winner or something like that. What about just the average Joe? Well, in one minute, let me tell you, David, how what you just said um, directly was my life. So for those four years I worked in finance, and I stayed there because it was my identity. Because since I was 15, I said I was going to work in finance and make a lot of money. So even though I got there and was making a lot of money and hated it, I, it was who I was going to become. Now, just like the author you quoted said, it's really hard to leave that. You have to be introspective. Well, What happened was I had a panic attack and I passed out at work. And wow. that was the beginning of realizing this really isn't for you. Then you can't think your way through the next step. I really enjoyed golf. And so I said, I'm going to go work at a golf course. And I did making $9 an hour at 25 Mm. years old after working in finance. Mm. Right. Because just like you said, I could go look at people at a golf course. I could go read about what it's like to be a club pro, but you're not going to know those things. And then six months later you know, reflected and said, okay, this is better as a hobby. Long story short, podcast, sales, other things. And now what I do, when I have gotten in the career I'm in now, which I love, I was the youngest consultant at this company and I was hired because of the varied background, yeah. because I, I had on my own, got certified as a coach on my own, started a really successful podcast. So I, I don't say this for any reason other than, this is why I want to have you on, because you put the research and the words behind an emotion I had felt, but I could not articulate. That's really interesting
1: to hear. And I, I think, you know, I think, and obviously as as you went through those things, you probably learned also, I mean, I think learning how to start anew is its own important skill. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, because again, people increasingly have to do it to some extent or another. Um and I'm glad that you got rewarded for that very background. Because like we talked about earlier, like even as there's this social stigma against changing directions, there's a lot of you know, objective empirical evidence that people are increasingly getting rewarded for it, but we still think they shouldn't do it in the long run. They're getting right. rewarded for it in the long run. They're often being docked for it in the short run, which is to me kind of the theme of range, but it, I, I joked with my editor, you know, this is what I think is a theme, but would make a horrible subtitle is that sometimes the things that provide you with head starts can actually undermine your long-term development, whether that means choosing a career and sticking with it, you know, specializing in a sport or doing this kind of repetitive practice or, um, uh, you know, one of the, one of the ones, then this relates to some other things we talked about, about discomfort, desirable difficulties, right? So let me, can I just share with you a quick study that came out after the book that I would have put in? You can keep sharing. Oh, yeah. This has to do with specifically how you learn things, but but it'll make sense why this is a larger point. So there was this study on how kids learn math. And seventh grade math classrooms were randomly assigned to different types of math learning. Some got what's called blocked practice, which is like you give them problem type A, 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 a then type B, 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 and they do them over and over. And they get better quickly. They're happy, they rate their own learning highly, and they rate their teacher highly. The other groups, classrooms got randomly assigned to what's called interleaved practice, which is instead of getting AAA, BBB, it's like as if you threw all the problem types in a hat and drew them out at random. And in that case, the kids are frustrated because they're getting different problems every time. They rate their own learning poorly. They rate their teacher poorly. But instead of learning how to just execute procedures over and over, they're learning how to match a strategy to a type of problem. And then when the test comes around, where everyone is facing new problems that none of them have seen, the interleave group blows the block practice group away, blows them away. The effect size, this was 0.83 standard deviations. That's like taking a kid from the 50th percentile and moving them to the 80th percentile, right? Studying the same stuff, just making it in a harder order. And, And so it shows they were really fooled by their own learning what was good for them early on. They had to struggle early on in order to get the payoff later on. And again, in this, this afterward I'm putting in, and this relates to, you mentioned like a lot of the stories in range, you know, because those things are interesting, um, are about people who had these really uncommon achievements. And I hope those would be sort of portals of engagement into research that applies more widely, but I, but I kind of regretted cutting certain research. So I'm adding it back in the afterward that looked at a dozen different countries and matched people for. Um, their parents' educational background, their test scores, their own years of education, their age. The difference was, did they get career specialized education uh, or did they get broader general education? And some of these people, about three quarters of these people didn't go to college, about a quarter did. Um, And the trend was exactly what I said, which is the people who got the career specialized education were more likely to be employed right out of school and and earned more in their first job. But they ended up less adaptable to a changing workplace. And so they end up spending so much less time in the labor force overall and less resistant to, and less able to adapt to change that they win in the long term in terms of how likely they are to be employed and how much they make. And they win in the short term, sorry, and lose in the long term. And so it was that trend that kind of runs throughout the book of, um, you know, sometimes these things that are sort of painful while you're figuring yourself and your skills out uh, I think a lot of the stigma and the reason we, we tell people not to, to make these changes is because it's a lot easier for us to see the short term. And in the short term, it often does set them back. But sometimes that's
0: the that's kind of desirable difficulty you need to, to develop in the long term. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Outlier.org. Outlier was started by the co-founder of Masterclass, and they offer beautiful four-credit online courses. The two classes they are currently offering are Calculus One and Introduction to Psychology. You get the flexibility of an online course with super high production value. The courses are for credit, so they'll transfer to your university. And it's only $400 per course. If you have prerequisite courses you have to take for your major, this is a great way to knock those out. Classes start on January 13th for the spring semester. So listen up. You can learn more or register today at outlier.org. Again, that's outlier.org. And now back to the episode. I
2: mean, just fantastically articulated. It it reminds me of, as I mentioned, I did some career coaching and I'll never forget a young woman who told me she had a great job for this big company, but she wanted to go uh, try to found a nonprofit based on helping the environment. And she said, my problem is my parents paid for my college. And now I have this great job and I feel like if I, uh, if I leave it, it's kind of not fair to them and they're advising me to stay. Mm -hmm. And I just remember saying, of course they're advising you to stay because a parent's job is to keep you safe Mm -hmm. and the safest thing would be to stay. And it's kind of what you're talking about. And, and it's hard, look, knowing we're going to change. It's hard to say, I'm going to take a gamble on this unknown when I have this known thing right now. Totally. So. What I want to ask you, though, is, is there any way to overcome that, you know, as a generalist? And I know that this show, the listeners are almost entirely generalist. Why else would one episode be about this and the next be about like deep sea diving? You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, So really, I think this is an, an hour long episode on just helping us feel comfortable in our skin. You know, do you have any advice on how to overcome, even though we know that the short term might not be as beneficial to, to, uh, keep looking towards that long term and trusting in the process. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good question. And, you know, part of my,
1: my hope, I don't want to say this was necessarily my hope while writing the book, but it's, it was my hope as I was kind of finishing the book was that, you know, and not, not that I think I can like change the conversation single-handedly or whatever, but. Oh, you can, you did. well, Well, I was hoping that it would, because I think, I think there are limits to what individuals can do. With respect to this, mm-hmm. right? Like, in the extreme sense, the seventh graders can't decide how to set up their math practice, right? They they're subject to whatever yeah. the system is, and but that's that's true to a much lesser degree, of course, for adults. But it's still true, like we're we're subject to the system that we're in. That's the advice we get, and and what HR people. Uh, you know, look for and and how managers manage and all these sorts of things and whether companies do allow you to to sort of develop into a generalist internally without leaving. And so, my my hope, you know, I don't think there is a perfect answer for individuals. Uh, my hope was to to hopefully give people who some ammo who want to change systems uh, to make it sort of less who, who recognize. I think this is actually pretty well recognized in sports now, not not among like the parents who are the horror stories, but among like good development systems that the way to make the best 20 or 30 year old, isn't the same as the way to make the best 10 year old. Mm. Um, but it's, it's maybe sort of less recognized in, in some, some other areas. And so I, I hope that I've given some ammo to people who want to change those systems. But I think it's really difficult for an individual because like I said, the sunk cost fallacy is very, very real. That that's this that's this cognitive bias that once we've started investing time or energy or money in, in anything, we're more likely to say, "I should stay the course." You know, it'll work out. It would be stupid to change, even if, even if, if that were like someone else's experience, you would give them different advice than you would give yourself, right? Um, so I think sometimes when it comes to these sorts of changes, we should try to like pretend we were giving advice to a friend. In in you know, uh, and what would we tell them to do if they're saying you know I'm 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 feeling like this isn't the right fit or I want to try something else and things like that, uh, but but it's a really strong cognitive bias. Like one of the the people I wrote about was this woman named J Seth. Again, she was at she was at 3M, so we're continuing that discussion there. But she basically, long story short, she studied a certain area of science in grad school for her master's and didn't like it, and that was you know two years of grad school. And so she wanted to change for her PhD research and was told, no, 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 like you'll, you'll get behind. And, but she did it anyway. And then she wanted to change once she got into the professional world and then no, 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 you'll get behind. And you think about that at the master's level, she'd put in a year and a half to two years facing a 50 year long or whatever work life. And people are already telling her, no, no, no. Like if you switch, you'll get behind. Like that's crazy. Great. That's crazy and i, I yeah. think that just shows how powerful that that bias sort of is and i think we should you know, the best thing we can do is just recognize that we may be programmed to view i think it's one of the reasons we're kind of obsessed with child prodigies is our intuition is that when we see someone doing something or getting a head start that they're on a, like a stable trajectory forever so if one person's ahead of another that that gap will will remain the same forever but that's absolutely not how it works. And, and we know that most prodigies do not go on to become eminent adults. Um, in fact, they're often just developing more rapidly as opposed to kind of having a having a higher ceiling ultimately. And so I think we just need to recognize, try to recognize uh, that in the long term, diversifying your, your toolbox makes you more adaptable. Uh, the hunt for match quality is a really important part of your sense of fulfillment, <laughs> which is something that Uh, I I think people should really prioritize, but that turns out to have a huge, huge impact on, on your performance. So, um, you know, everyone thinks about this concept of grit now, but I think there's a lot of evidence that if you help someone get a good fit in their work, it will look like grit, meaning that even if they didn't have the greatest work ethic or stick-to-itiveness before, if you help them get something that fits them better, they will start to display more of those characteristics, even if they didn't before because the work fits them better. And, and so I think we really need to prioritize that, that hunt for something that works for us. And, and that kind of requires having some diverse experiences, you know, and my, but I, but I don't think it's fair to put all of the, the burden on individuals because nobody's kind of outside the system, you know? So my hope was that, that at least we can have some more ground where people who, who want to, Develop more broadly can. I'm not saying we should force everyone to, but I, yeah. we should do less to deter people who would like to. And I, I, re, I actually got to talk about this with with Bill Joy, I don't know the computer science uh, uh, legend recently, and he was very concerned that we are. He thinks like to to tackle the biggest problems, um, you need to enable some people to develop into polymaths. And his feeling is you can't make someone want to become a polymath or become a polymath, but you can certainly stifle them, right? Like being, yeah, I was going to
2: say, but you can make them not. Yeah.
1: Do that. And, and he's concerned that we don't have those kinds of bell labs, like places anymore, where you're really proactively trying to allow people who want to develop that way to do it. So that, that was a big concern for him. I was interested to kind of interested to hear that.
2: Well, David, I it's, it's too, uh, please tell me the honest truth. Do you have five more yeah, minutes yeah, or yeah. do you have yeah, to go? No, I do. I do. Oh, okay. Um, because there was a couple of things you mentioned there. One was you talked about grit, and I have to get this on the show because what, what has been mentioned about your book is, and, and I've heard in other interviews, that Malcolm Gladwell has basically said uh, you have made him think differently about the 10,000-hour rule. <laughs> you also talk about some of the misinterpretations of grit mm-hmm. that was popularized by, obviously, the book Grit. And what I thought about is if I had a lineup of podcast guests and it went like this, Malcolm Gladwell, um, was it Angela Duckworth? Yep. Is that who wrote? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And Angela Duckworth and then David Epstein, I would listen to Malcolm and say, you're such an expert. And this book was a bestseller. I believe you. And then I'd listen to Angela. I'd say, you're such an expert and this book is a bestseller. I believe you. And then I'd interview view you. I'd say the same thing. And I'd be like, but wait, this is against what they just said. So. You know, with these research books being so in demand and being so well-written and so convincing, but also oftentimes disputing or at least building on, as science does and research does, the other one, how do we know where to focus and and where to kind of hang our hat? Because grit, I mean, that's a tough one that people just latched onto, and I think the things you say and the way you researched it prove that it's not exactly how we've been talking about it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a great point you mentioned. And, and
1: also to add to that, there's like some recency bias, right? So whichever one of us you talked to last would probably feel the most convincing <laughs> to you. Um, and, you know, a lot of my critique of grit, I view, so the 10,000 hours research, the underlying research was poor. It was poorly done. The conclusions from the data were wrong. And that's, that's been shown now. So that, that mm-hmm. was, that was one issue. Um, and in, in, yeah, in fact, and, and there was just a replication attempt of it and it failed and whatever, but, um, but for grit, the kind of critique that, that I synthesized in the book was very much coming from Angela Duckworth and her colleagues' papers. So that was something where I feel like just a lot of the nuance was lost in the popular trans- translation of what. The science actually said, and so I didn't kind of view myself as disputing that work the same way as the 10,000 hours. More so, disputing kind of the way that it had been publicly received, and highlighting some of the the aspects of that work um, that that had just totally gone, you know, in one ear or out the other, or maybe never in one ear at all. And and in fact, uh, two days before Range came out, um, Angela Duckworth's weekly email, like I subscribed to her weekly email, was titled summer is for sampling. And it was about how um, basically she said, you know, kids should take the summer for trying things because how else could they possibly know like what they'll be interested in or good at in case they, without trying stuff. And she says it took her a decade of her adult life to figure out what she wanted to commit for. I think she said it took her that long to find, um, you know, a direction to match her dedication. She had to try these different things. And so I feel like, you know, in a lot of ways, she and I end up on the same ground, basically um you know in some ways, maybe that you come away from that saying like well so the so then the advice is like be gritty when you should be gritty um yeah. and, and and yes, it is, but but life's messy yeah. and so so I don't think Angela and I, and I so much disagree as just kind of highlighting certain aspects. And and in that area of the critique, I, I made sure to actually quote right from one of her papers, you know, to show that mm-hmm. she's not oblivious to this. She's not hiding this stuff at all.
2: Uh, it's right there in the papers. It just gets, it gets lost in translation. Well, and I think that's what's important is, you know, I imagine if I would have interviewed Angela, I don't know if she would have clarified it, not because she didn't want to, but because it was almost a footnote, but it's such an important footnote that when you bring it up, it matters. Because again, for somebody like myself, who, who has those kind of three to four year stints at jobs, oftentimes I began to think, maybe I just don't have grit. Maybe I'm a quitter, uh, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But it's, I kept thinking to myself, it's actually way harder to do it the way I'm doing it. How is this possible? And as somebody who refers to experts and knowledge and research, that can be really difficult. So at the end, I think what you're saying is kind of take it all with that grain of salt because things can be interpreted differently if not fully investigated. Yeah.
1: And I mean, do what you suggested. You know, these are all this is like the marketplace of ideas. Right. And you should I don't. As a science writer, in writing about the amount of science that goes into the books I write about, I'm keenly aware that if you're going to write about a lot of science, something you're writing about is going to turn out to be wrong. The problem is you don't know what it is yet, right? I'm sure I'll yeah. find out at some point in the future. Um, and so I think you have to have that open mind no matter what. And I think, I think Malcolm has shown he has that, you know, which is why he was willing to say, I've, I've changed my mind, when he certainly didn't have to. Um, and you know, with, with grit specifically, I think important things to remember are... In the paper, first of all, if you go look at the effect sizes in grit, it's a small amount of variation in outcomes that is explained by grit. It's not zero, but it's certainly not as much as you might think from from some of the ways that people are pushing it. Oh. And um, like I think in the famous West Point study, it accounted for something like, you know, 2% of the variance in outcomes or something like that, which is not nothing. And you never account for 100% with any kind of research because life's messy, but it's not... It ain't eighty percent, you know. Um, right, and um, but the other thing is that that Duckworth and her colleagues again they they're not hiding this stuff. They note they say they they note that the people in their studies, whether it was people in the national finals of the spelling bee or at West Point or you know in the Ivy League, were pre-selected for the study based on very discrete short-term goals that those people already had, right? Whereas in and so they say you can't really extrapolate from this to the wider world, or even finding what you should be doing in the first place, um, you know, is, is, is the greater challenge in many cases. And that, that's right there in their papers.
2: That is the greater challenge. I mean, like you said, have grit when it's good to have grit. I mean, that would be like saying, I've set a goal and then do I actually work towards that goal? And I would imagine that's fairly common. The misinterpretation is I set a goal. I feel that it's not right, but I stick with it anyways, because I was told to have grit and yeah. therein lies some of the struggle. I
1: mean, if someone tells you that's a problem, then just refer to Angela Duckworth's email where she said it took her a decade of adult life to figure <laughs> out what she should be doing. Right. And I think she very smartly said in that email also something like, don't confuse um, the, de- the healthy development of a work ethic with... Um, the premature commitment to like a singular focus or something like that, and I thought that was a very smart way to put it.
2: That is, and if you just if if that's you paraphrasing, I mean, <laughs> really well done in that. I know we need to let you go. Last question for you for the generalists listening who are you know listening to podcasts, reading books, audio books, magazines, all of these things. What should we do with all of the information? Because I feel like sometimes as a generalist it's our drug of choice, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's variety is our drug of choice. And sometimes we do it just for the sake of feeling educated and well-rounded. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I'm asking is, did your research or through your own knowledge, you know, do you have any recommendations on, for those of us still seeking, which most of us are seeking something, betterment, improvement, et cetera, uh, do you have a process or science behind what to do as you learn new things about the world and about yourself? Sure.
1: And by the way, if, if that
2: feels kind of confusing, maybe all this this mash
1: of information you're getting, like think of the people I wrote about in chapter 10 in Phil Tetlock's work who developed this really good judgment about the world. They constantly feel confused. They're taking in information from these really diverse sources. They're self-conscious about their own thinking. They're self-conscious about their lack of singular expertise and stuff like that. And they turn out to have the best judgment. And the people who turn out have poor judgment, have a really singular focus, are super confident that they understand everything, um, (laughs) you know, but, but don't then perform well. So, so maybe it's, it's again, another example of being less comfortable, but, but functioning better for me. I mean, one thing I do, one is I try to relate things, um, that, that I read and consume to one another to build the so-called semantic network. But also I decided to start what I call my, my, my book of small experiments where it's kind of like. You know, like a notebook I had when I was a science grad student. Except in this case, I'll, I'll start to write down things that, like, you know, I think I might be good at, or I might find really interesting. You know, and it's it could be cued by anything I'm reading or thinking about, and and so I'll will put down like a hypothesis that I want to test. Whether that's am I? In, that's how the the fiction writing class came out of this, right? Where I was like, I'm kind of stuck with these sort of structural issues in my writing. What are some ways I could, you know, I could maybe do better at this. And, and I said, well, you know, fiction writers have real structural challenges. Maybe I'll try to learn some of that. And so at least like every other month, I force myself to find a way to test one of these hypotheses. And then I come back and and sort of write down what I learned. And I think that's a sort of a, a fruitful way to at least make sure that I'm constantly reflecting and trying something new and that it's always coming out of uh, out of these things that I'm sort of reading and consuming, and these these interests that I didn't know I had, you know, you kind of have to cast a wide net to to find those sorts of things.
2: It's like you're putting deliberate practice on learning. <laughs> 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 right? all full
1: circle. Yeah, no, I
2: I, I know all full yeah. circle. Well, David, look, I I I've gushed and I've said it, but this was one of the most important books and messages I've read in a decade. Um, I really feel like it's provided me with some justification. I know a lot of people listening, and I know how much work, effort, and research you put in your books. So I wanted to let you know that because it's more than just, hey, it's a good read or it's good information. I think it really impacts people. So again, for those listening, the book is Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And you may have also noticed that we were talking briefly about a previous book that David's written, and you've probably heard of it because well, it was the New York times bestseller. So that was the sports gene inside the science of extraordinary athletic performance. David, before we let, we'll let you go. Um, where are you out there on the web? I mean, where can I just make sure I follow and, and latch on to everything you say now?
1: <laughs> <Even> I wouldn't <laughs> recommend latching on to everything I say But <laughs> um, at, at David Epstein. I'm on Twitter. Sometimes I'm quite active and sometimes not so much, <laughs> but, but also, yeah. uh, David Epstein.com. And I've, I, there's so much stuff I had to cut out of the book. Like my first manuscript was 30,000 words long that I'm, I want to start putting some of it into a newsletter that I'll, I'll get going pretty soon.
2: And that's, Oh, please do know, sign up on and my, one thing, I don't think enough authors do, but given your pedigree and if you've done this already, let me know, put something out there about your writing process or, or recommendations to authors, because well, it's needed.
1: Oh, wait, I have, I just did an interview came out with me recently. I think it was on, hold on, let me, yeah, it's on writingroutines.com. So if you, if you Google writingroutines.com and, and my name and David Epstein, it'll pop up. And that was a fun interview about some, uh, you know, process
2: stuff. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. Learn, see, learn something new every day. We will link to that in the show notes. I got to get you out of here, David. So great. So appreciative. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. I really appreciated, uh, appreciated the interview. Absolutely. And
2: I'll be sure to let you know when this airs within the next couple of weeks. Great. Looking forward to it. All right, thanks David. All right, thank you. All right,
0: bye-bye. Take care, bye. That's it. We did it. You did it. That's the last episode of 2019. I hope you enjoyed it. David Epstein, absolutely fantastic. His book Range, while generalists triumph in a specialized world. Can be found at your local bookstore or wherever books are sold online. We hope your 2019 has been fantastic. If anything, it's been a year. That's it's been a year. But if you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at SmartPeoplePod. And if you'd like to support the show, you can leave us a rating or review on whatever device and app you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can always head over to Patreon, become a patron over there, patreon.com/smartpeoplepodcast. podcast. right, that's it for us this week. I think Chris and I are going to be cooking something up for an end-of-year episode, so be looking out for that. But make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode.